Well, I thought I'd take just a minute. We won't spend much time on it because we used to do the uh, devotionals. We started at 8.30. We did it in each of our classes. And uh, so we haven't spent much time on that. But there's a couple of things I thought would be good just to put your, let you know it's in there. It's under section one. And it looks like it's the very first one, behind one. It's called The Biblical Basis for Health Ministry. And it's just a little short page there. And the reason I put it in is we, we need to make sure we understand why we're doing this, don't we? <laughs> we're not just here to help people to be physically fit, but we want them to also find wholeness, don't we? And uh, that's the beauty of the Adventist health message is that it's a message of wholeness. It's physical, it's mental, it's social, it's spiritual. God wants us to develop in all of those areas. And uh, so while we're talking mostly about fitness, it's good to have this, and, and depending on the group you're in, I usually do a lot of my programs in church, church settings, and so to spend just a, a little bit of time there, not try to convert everyone in the class, but uh, just to give a little testimony sometimes is good, or a verse or two. One of the one classes I was doing recently at our home church, and uh, we, it was on the, uh, it was actually the eight weeks to wellness class. It's one my associate is teaching over the weekend. And uh, a fellow came in from the community and, and about his third night there, and he says, well, now, why is the church teaching classes on health? He says, I don't get the connection. <laughs> and uh, if you're in a hospital, you know, it makes sense. But why, does a church, why is a church interested in health? So we had a nice little discussion. And if somebody has uh, asked you that question, it's nice to be kind of ready for it and say, well, no, that's a great question. Here's some, uh, some suggestions why we do that as a church. And of course, one of the first things that's easy to mention is that uh, when Christ was on earth, he spent as much time doing healing as he did preaching and teaching, didn't he? Actually, more time. Mm -hmm. Meeting the physical needs. And I've thought about that a lot. And why, why do you suppose he did that? <clears throat> why did Christ spend so much time healing people? Why didn't he just preach the gospel? Uh-huh. It's a way we can come close to people, isn't it? And not only bring them to Jesus, but also actually ready people's minds to hear spiritual things. It does, doesn't it? Okay. We do have a sheet. Is it, it's going around yet. Did it get around to everyone to sign in? Uh, keep it going when you get done. <laughs> And how better can you tell people you love them? One way, uh, I remember when I was running a marathon up in uh, Spokane, Washington, and we came around the corner, and there was this preacher up on the bank. There was 57,000 people, I think, in that race that day. And he was standing up there, and he figured this would be a good time to preach to 57,000 people. <laughs> so he had his big sign up there, and he had his Bible out, you know. And as we went by, he poured it on, you know. God loves you and all the good things, you know, that's there. It wasn't always so appropriate. People didn't always appreciate it. <clears throat> but that's one way to say God loves you. Another way to say God loves you is you go down and you help people that are hurting. Which do you suppose is more effective? <laughs> yeah, there's really, 
you can stand up on the street corner and holler, God loves you, but it's not the same as going down and putting your hands on someone and helping them and encouraging them and, and uh, healing them if you are able to, or teaching them how to live so that they overcome their health problems and so on. <laughs> so anyway, we're just, uh, just a verse or two here, uh, if you're just following along there, it says that this was Christ's chosen method of ministry to demonstrate to the world what God is like. When he announced his ministry, Jesus said he had come to preach the good news, proclaim the liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed. Well, we're not able to put our hands on people and heal them, but we can do that, those same things, can't we? Setting people free. Free from what? Well, all kinds of uh, health-damaging problems that can come when we're not living in harmony with the laws of life, aren't there? And... Uh, so we can help people be set free from the effects of a, of a poor life. <clears throat> and to announce the year when the Lord will save his people. By the, word, by the way, that word save, <clears throat> when you look in the Greek word, I don't know if we have any theologians here. I'm not, but I can look them up in concordances. What is that Greek word? Do you remember? Save. Yeah, sozo. And then in other places, when Christ says uh, he healed the man, it's also the same word, isn't it? And so that's interesting that the same word, to heal and to save, or to restore back again, to help. That's the work that we're doing, isn't it? So we're, whether we're restoring in the physical or the mental or the social, uh, the spiritual, it's all part of the work of healing, health and healing. And another, another way it's uh, pronounced uh, the same word, but it's uh, translated as wholeness. Jesus said, would you be made whole? Remember that verse? And they're all the same word. And I think that helps us to appreciate why we as a church uh, do that. Then the next one there is John 10.10. 10. Do you remember what that one says? I have come that you might have life. And what kind of life? More abundant life. Or another translation I read is life in all its fullness. That's kind of the theme here is in our, in our uh, week this way. I don't have it right here in front of me, but uh, choose a full life. Uh huh. And that's what Christ came to give us. I love that. That's a very positive message, isn't it? Why would anybody ever be opposed to that message? Having a full life, abundant life. That's something that everybody can relate to, isn't it? And that's one reason I think you were talking about the opening wedge. It's a way of establishing relationships with people. Everybody wants to have a full life. Nobody argues against that. <laughs> and we just help them to, need to help them over time to see what all that full life in, in, uh, entails, doesn't it? Okay. And you can read through some of those others. We won't talk about all of them. There's the one down there, number five, the parable of the talents. And uh, different people have been given different talents, and some used their talents wisely, and they were uh, said, you know, faithful servant, you'll have more responsibilities. Others didn't use their talents so well, and what they had was taken away. <laughs> is health a, uh, a gift of God? It certainly is, isn't it? And how are we using that gift? Are we using it wisely? Are we good stewards uh, for what God entrusts us with, whether it's money or our health or whatever it is that he gives us as gifts? Uh, as good stewards, we want to take good care of it, don't we? And uh, that appeals to me. Uh, God has gone all the work of creating a beautiful body that works well most of the time. <laughs> yeah.
And we need to do all we can as faithful stewards to take good care of it, don't we? And then I like the one about Third John, verse 2. Dearly beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and what? Be in good health, even as your soul prospers. So God wants us to be in good health. He wants us to prosper, wants us to do well. Okay, well, those are some and you might like to add to it. And over the years, as I've been reading the Bible, as we come to uh, different verses that relate to health in the different areas, I turn to the back of my Bible and I write it in. And I've got two or three pages now <laughs> in the back of my Bible. Uh, keywords. And uh, last time I read the Bible from beginning to end, I found a lot of new ones that I hadn't. And when you get into the Proverbs and some of those places, there's a lot of good verses there as well, aren't there? In the Psalms and so on. So you might like to begin doing that and building a little uh, special place where you can think about how health and the Bible, the biblical basis of health and why we do that as a church, and then have a good answer for people when they say, well, why do you do this in a church? <laughs> and we can tell them why. Well, let's just start with a little prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you again for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity of studying ways to take good care of the body and this gift that you have given us. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to be able to help other people to find this abundant life that you have come to give us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, today's uh, topic is called Keeping Fit and Lean. Is that a need today in our current society? <laughs> Probably that's our greatest need, isn't it? When we look at the uh, statistics, about two-thirds of us, 34% are obese. That's the weight is high enough that it's causing uh, serious damage to our health already. Another 34% approximately are overweight. That makes two-thirds of us in the United States are over probably the ideal weight. And so uh, we all need to work on that. Uh, it's a common need. If we look in our churches, it's very common. Most of us are at one time or another struggling uh, with her weight. I know I've had to work on that all my life. Um, I'm about the same weight now as when I was uh, 18, but I was overweight at 18. I've <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> never been skinny. My father was 230 or so most of his life, and my mother was well over 200 pounds. And the brother next to me uh, got up to 460 pounds. And uh, my oldest brother got up to 300 pounds. We've got him down now to 220, and he's real pleased with that. <laughs> and my sister is just pleasingly plump. <laughs> and so it kind of runs in the, in the families. And so uh, how much of that is learned as children and how much of that is genetics, we, we know probably both have an effect. But some people work out a little harder than others, so it's a common need. But we need an active lifestyle. We need to be eating healthfully. We need to be doing all the kinds of things that help us give us an advantage to deal with those issues, whether it's genetic or not. We still need to deal with it, don't we? So how do we help people to do that? <clears throat> and how about our teens and our adolescents, the children? Same thing in the children, isn't it? And that's probably the biggest growing area right now. It is, uh-huh. And some of the children, you look in the playgrounds. Uh, you know, when we were young, when you were kids, most of the kids were pretty lean. And now today, it's, it's different, isn't it? And what do they do all day? They sit in school, and they come home, and they sit at the computer and play computer games, and then they watch television. And It's a sedentary society, isn't it? So uh, we need to 
need to be aware of all of that. <coughs> Oops, I went in reverse. Maybe it's because we don't know how to properly weigh ourselves. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? <laughs> uh, maybe we can cure the problem just by how we weigh ourselves. <laughs> so that's the question, what is a healthy weight? And for young adults, that may be the weight at which you look and feel your best. That's kind of the uh, mantra on television and so on. We want to look our best always. For athletes, it may be the weight at which you perform your best. So I remember when I was running marathons, I kept trying to get as lean as I could. I got down to 155, I think was my lowest. And, um, and I always wanted to be skinnier. <laughs> no matter what you weigh, you always want to weigh two or three pounds less, right? And I finally got it down to 153, and I thought that was really good. Uh, but no matter what you are, it seems like we always like to be lower. But when you're running uh, 26 miles at a time, it, it's hard to be overweight. So anyway, athletes are always trying to trim off a little weight because every pound slows them down. And if you see the winners, they're extremely lean. <laughs> they're just muscle and bone, and, and that's it. Uh, and skin over the top. I had a friend who lived next door. He was a world-class athlete, Phil. He lives down here in Florida somewhere now. And uh, I remember when you would take and, and pinch up his fat, they say it should be less than an inch. <laughs> well, his skin fat on his belly was just like this. Just uh, absolutely nothing there. And I checked his blood for his cholesterol levels, and his HDLs were higher than his LDLs. I don't know if you've ever done much blood work, but it's always the other way around. Only person I've ever had whose HDL levels were higher than the LDL. Uh, in other words, he was completely immune to heart disease. <laughs> his HDLs were up around 80 or 90, and his LDLs were about 50 or 60. <laughs> anyway, all that exercise uh, had turned him into a very lean machine. And we're not probably all going to get that lean, but how about this for a definition for health for most of us? It's the range of weights for a given height that correspond to the what? Lowest rate of morbidity or mortality. And so the research that's been done, we look at people's weights and we compare that to disease. And here's one that has been done. And uh, are you all familiar with the concept of body mass index, BMI? BMI is an index. They take your uh, weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. So it's kind of an obtuse equation, but it comes out with a set of range of numbers. And you may not be able to do it in your, in your mind or even on your calculator. <laughs> it's easier. We'll have an instrument we'll go out and use in our break that'll calculate that for us. But it comes up with a set of numbers, and basically what we're going to find out is the numbers between 18.5 to 24.9 is the range generally recommended as normal or healthy. We'll look at the research on that. By the time you get over 25, there may be a slight increase in risk, but it doesn't go up very high until you get up over BMI of 30. That's what they define as obesity or significantly overweight, and that's when the risk begins to climb more rapidly. So here we're taking a people of a BMI of a 30 compared to people of BMI of 22, which is in the healthy range, and looking over here, the relative risk of disease. And this was heart disease and diabetes and all these chronic things and you take a group of a uh, large number of people and you compare them and look at the difference. First one was heart disease. Does that excess weight make a difference? Significant, isn't it? How about high blood pressure? Significant difference. 
gallbladder disease. And look at this one, diabetes. Now, we know diabetes is a very fast-growing disease in the United States. And why? Well, as weight goes up, that increases the risk. So, uh, yes, there's a big connection, and our, our weight makes a big difference. So the weight at which we would uh, have the lowest rate of diseases and live the longest. Now, this one, uh, set in this 216,000 people uh, study, uh, they estimated the number of deaths caused by obesity yearly. Well, that, that's the number, excuse me. 216,000 people die each year in the United States because of obesity. That's a large number, isn't it? And it's second only to smoking and high blood pressure as the leading preventable causes of death. So the leading causes of death, this is premature death, early death, is smoking. By the way, what do you suppose the second one cause is? No, obesity. Well, that's what it says there, isn't it? Second only to smoking and, and high blood pressure. So uh, obesity is third. So that means that this one is the second. And about 390,000 people die each year from high blood pressure prematurely if it was down. By the way, how many people die from high cholesterol? It's estimated. About 60,000. We talk a lot about cholesterol in our health programs in our church. We don't talk much about blood pressure. But about four or five times as many people die from high blood pressure as they do from high cholesterol. Kind of an interesting little sideline. So anyway, obesity is up there in the top three, isn't it? And so keeping our weight under control can make a big difference. Now here's the very best study that's been done available today. Notice how many people are in the study. Big study, isn't it? <laughs> and they're all non-smokers. And why is that critical? Well, if a person smokes, you weigh less because of the smoking, but your risk for dying is even higher. And so if you don't control for that, it, it uh, shifts the curves here. So this is... Uh, uh, this is non-smokers, and 10 years of follow-up, and these one and a half million people, and then they just checked their BMI levels, which we'll do at our break, and then they saw how long they lived and what their risk of dying was, and that's mortality from any cause. So what do we see? It's, it's not a flat line. <laughs> it's kind of a U-shaped line, isn't it? And so here, these are higher mortalities. It comes down, lowest mortalities right here, and then it starts going back up again. So if you have a very low BMI, you're below the 18 and a half, notice how high your risk is. You're 47% more likely to die from any cause. So is it a health advantage to be too skinny? No, twice Well, in a way, yeah, the body's not being nourished properly. Right, so and, uh, and, and then it goes down still a little bit, even if you're just in the lean, too lean here. And then if you get down into this range, we talked about the 20 to 25.9. That's where people live the longest. Then as it starts to getting up over 25, a slight increase here, just about the same amount as being just a little underweight. And then by the time we reach that 30, then we're already up to 44% increased risk of mortality. If you go another five points on the BMI, you're up to 88%. By the time of BMI of 40, we're up around two and a half times more likely to die from any cause. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? Which was the BMI of that, uh, that uh, lot of skin and bone? 
Uh, he was probably right in here. He had a lot of muscle underneath there. Not much fat, but he had some good muscle. <laughs> you don't run that far and be that strong without some good muscle. So he wasn't real lean as far as the BMI is concerned, but he was certainly lean as percent body fat. Had no extra fat on him. He might have even been in the 20. Pretty close in there. Okay, so keep that in mind, and we'll check your BMIs. How many of you know what your BMI is already? A few of you. And uh, we'll have a little thing that'll check both percent body fat and BMI. So here's the healthy weight zone, and those are kind of figures you need to know. And uh, there's charts in your booklet. Let's see if we can find those. It's in the uh, little book, this one. And uh, it's also in your guide here. And it's probably back under section four, I suspect. And you can look on there and get a bit of an idea. Yeah, I didn't see it under four. Section three, let's try that one. Yep, there it is, second page. First page, actually, just the back side of it. It's right on the back of the uh, aerobic mile chart. So this is a quick way that you can do it. It's an estimate, and uh, we'll measure it exactly a little later on. But you can see the height over here on the left-hand side. And then you can see the healthy weight range, the overweight range, and the obese range with the BMI numbers right above it. So for example, if a person is 68 inches and weighs 100 and 77 pounds, what is their BMI? Everybody agree? If you're 68 inches tall and you weigh 177 pounds, what's your BMI? 27. Good. Okay. And so they're just a wee bit over. Now, just to give you some things to think about, um, in that gray zone there, that first part, if the person exercises a lot and has a big muscle mass, they may be a little bit higher, but not at higher risk because it's muscle mass that they have. So I talk to the person. Are they exercising regularly? Are they doing weightlifting and things? And if they are, you know, you're just fine, probably in that range. Uh, if uh, the person is 70 years old and their BMI is in that range, I tell them they're doing just fine. Because what we find is the people who are 70 and above actually live longer if you're in the overweight range than if you're in the normal weight range. Kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> uh, the people who live the longest, when they're 70 years of age and all, older, actually live longer if they're in that range that's from a BMI of 25 to 29 than the healthy range, which would be the 20 to 25. Now, why, we don't all know, but we do know that as people get older, it's good to have some reserves. And if they have, uh, are too lean, they don't seem to have the reserves and something comes along and they aren't able to withstand it. I thought the average age for most centenarians was, I was reading something, 125 pounds. Average weight for? Centenarian, the average was uh -huh. Uh, it's true, as you get older, you begin to start losing some weight. But to lose too much weight is not necessarily healthy. 
So what they're suggesting, what we're just giving you the facts is don't be too hard on those people. <laughs> they may live longer than the people who have a BMI of 20 if you're, say, 26 or 27. Uh, so anyway, just a couple of things that you know when you're dealing with people on an individual basis. And what I usually tell people who are in the gray zone, uh, you need to be careful. It's a warning. The weight is getting a little higher than it should. So the first rule, number one, is don't go any higher. We can do that by exercising and eating more healthily. And if you want to lose some weight, that might have some health benefit. But the primary thing is not to let them get higher. If they're up in the 30 and above, by all means, those people need to lose some weight because it's damaging their health. And even if they lose just 10 or 15 pounds, it can be a, a real help to them. So the BMI table, as uh, we looked at there. Now another way is doing our waist circumference. And I just happened to bring a little tape with me this morning. I can find it here right quick. Here we go. And if you want probably the best method to tell if you're overweight or not, you simply weigh your, your waist. And we'll have this available so that you can check it. And what the research is showing is that your waist circumference is even a better predictor of your risk of having disease, such as diabetes and heart disease and high cholesterol and so on, than is your BMI. It's a better, stronger predictor in every case. So that's a simple one we can do, isn't it? Notice it more accurately estimates abdominal or visceral fat. And I think we've mentioned a time or two, that's where the biggest danger is, is the fat that's on the inside of the body, around the middle, that's most closely related to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all those kinds of problems, high blood glucose levels, and so on. So it's actually the best predictor. So when you're doing your screenings, if you're doing things, and in our fitness and so on, we like to do uh, waist circumferences as well. So here we're looking at cardiovascular disease risk on, this, on the left-hand side, people who are developing already cardiovascular risk problems, 4,000 people. They measured their waist circumferences. Those who had the lowest risk were those who were less than 35 inches. When they got to 35, notice there's a, almost a 20% increase in cardiovascular risks. By the time they got up to 40 inches, 2.4 times more likely to have a heart attack or stroke or high blood pressure and those damaging diseases. So that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? So we, as a general rule, the National Heart and Lung Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health, they're kind of the organization that sets standards and so on, they say that this is equivalent to a BMI of 30. That's obesity. So men, well, yeah, men should be less than 40 inches. If you're not, you're in the high risk. Here's the moderate risk, a little bit, and the ideal. Okay? Now, let's look at it for ladies. Less than 33 inches is ideal. If it gets to 33 and above, that's the moderate risk category there. In their case, already up 56%. And by the time they get to 37 inches, 3.16 times. And so this would be considered high risk. So there's different ways of assessing isn't there, the obesity. And I think of all of them, probably the waist circumference is most accurate. So where do you uh, measure it? Uh, about the level, right where the waist is, is uh, 
right at the bottom of the rib cage there, there's usually a, supposed to be a waist there <laughs> where it's, it's less. And that's about, uh, about the, just above the umbilical. And uh, test it there. So when you do a test, <clears throat> you want the person to take a deep breath, and then what? <sighs> Relax. In other words, don't <sighs> suck it in. <laughs> okay. And then when they're relaxed, pull the tape around. Don't pull it too tight, <laughs> but just snug. And then that's the weight measurement. Now, it's fun to check in fitness programs because a lot of times people begin to exercise and we start doing all these sit-ups and things and uh, are walking and burning those calories and so forth. And over time, we may not lose again much weight on the scales because we're also building some muscle and things, aren't we? But you can see the waist girth coming down. And uh, when I do our, our, some of these programs that go for 10 weeks, towards the end, we begin asking people, are they noticing any changes? And oftentimes you'll see people raise their hand and say, I noticed my belt is a notch or two tighter now. <laughs> well, that's a good sign, isn't it? That abdominal fat's being burned up. And what we'll learn is that exercise helps to burn up that abdominal fat first. It's uh, the most dangerous kind goes first. Okay, so that's uh, a little bit to understand about obesity. Now, how do we keep fit and trim? Active people, of course, are more likely to be fit and trim. And let's look at some of the things that happen as we exercise. First of all, <clears throat> just looking at uh, how many calories we burn doing it in different exercises. Remember yesterday we were talking about METs? What do we mean by an activity that's one MET? What is that defined as? The number of calories when you're sitting. So you're all burning one MET. If you're doing calisthenics like we were doing some of those strength building exercises, notice we were doing three to eight times as many calories per minute as when sitting. <laughs> That's a lot of difference, isn't it? And uh, climbing hills, you know, if you're hiking, climbing a hill, that's the one I like to do. Behind our house, we have a big hill that goes up. It's two miles to the top and two miles down. And uh, I huff and puff on the way up, and, and then going downhill, I get a little easier break. But uh, you're burning maybe 10 times as many calories going up the hill, maybe five coming back down. Or if you're biking, even 10 to 12 miles an hour, you're burning seven times as many calories. So in the summertime, I like to ride my bike to work. If I take my car, it takes me 15 minutes. If I ride my bike, it's only half an hour, only 15 minutes difference. But I've got a nice little route that goes down by the Clackamas River, away from the traffic, and it's a pretty, and, and going back, and. Uh, when I'm riding home at night, uh, Mount Hood is right in front of me, a great big snow cap and beautiful scenery, and, and usually in the summertime we have some blue sky, and, and it's fun. It's a recreation as well as getting some exercise. So doing that, I'm burning a lot more calories, aren't I? And so that is, uh, makes it easier. In the summertime, I usually run up to about 30 aerobic miles per week, and that's the reason because I bike to work as well. And you can look down through some of these other activities. Uh, exercise burns up more calories. And so being as active as we can uh, makes a big difference in how many calories we burn and keeping our weight under control. Now, <clears throat> activity, inactivity, or aging, the kind of the two go together in our culture, results in loss of what? We mentioned muscle tissue. And that's about... 1% per year. 
And uh, by the time you get up to those older ages, a lot of those people are so feeble then they can't take care of themselves anymore and that's just because they haven't been exercising those muscles keeping them healthy. But regular exercise turns that around and you build muscle tissue instead of losing it. And so therefore your metabolism, your resting metabolism is controlled by our body mass. And so with a higher muscle mass, you have a higher overall metabolism, greater energy expenditure, and it's easier to maintain a healthy weight. So it's another way which exercise, including strength training, helps us in keeping our weight where we'd like it to be. Here's some other benefits. Uh, people are often upset or un who are, who are uh, uh, upset or unhappy often look for food, don't they, as ways to make their life better. Have you ever heard that? Comfort foods. <laughs> Somebody didn't treat me right at work today, I'm going to go home and pig out. <laughs> and it makes you feel good for the moment. <laughs> but in the long run, it adds other problems, doesn't it? I'm thinking my own family, my sister-in-law, she had a baby that was born that had a defect in its heart. And it just didn't have good enough circulation to grow. I think it lived for almost two years. But at two years, it only was only about two, two pounds more than when it was born. Just couldn't thrive and finally died. And if it couldn't be healthy and normal, it was probably, you know, the best thing, nature's way. But of course, any mother uh, would be very traumatic. And uh, when the baby died, within the month after that, she gained 30 pounds. Now, what was the problem? She was trying to use food as a substitute for help with the grief, wasn't she? Problem is, today she still has that 30 pounds plus a lot more. <laughs> and so it doesn't really help in the long run, but what I'm getting at is emotional issues can often help or lead to people overeating. And one of the benefits of exercise, again, is it helps the mood. Regular exercise improves the mood and decreases dependence on food for binging. And so that's another way in which it can help in controlling weight. Exercise, one of the best stress reduc reduction uh, things that we can do and helps us to feel better. Uh, exercise that lowers the risk for certain diseases that are related to overweight. When we're overweight, our blood pressure is higher. If you exercise, it helps to bring it under control. If you're overweight, every excess pound of fat we have produces excess cholesterol that goes into our body. As we exercise, we tend to normalize this again. People who are overweight, as we just saw a while ago, more likely to have heart disease, aren't they? And if you exercise, you're less likely to have heart disease and cancers and diabetes and depression and so on. So everything bad that overweight does for us, exercise is almost like an antidote for it, like a medicine for it. And so if a person has that tendency, regular physical activity, extremely important. Now let's look at some research that shows how this works. This is uh, looking at that study done in in uh, Texas, actually, where they put the people on the treadmill, found out who were low fit and who were high fit. We just take the two extremes and compare them so we can see the differences here. Almost 20 years of follow-up on 25,000 people. And uh, here we look at in normal cholesterol, I think we looked at this already, didn't we? Here's the death rates for those with normal cholesterol, but those who are normal but exercising significantly less. But when you look at high cholesterol, Notice that it cuts the risk in half, even if their cholesterol doesn't come down. So you can see it's almost like an antidote, isn't it? The cholesterol raises the risk 
person who's sedentary, not exercising, and has high cholesterol, very high risk. But if they start exercising, it cuts their risk in half. And you can have high cholesterol, but if you're exercising, you even have a lower risk than the person who has normal cholesterol, but who doesn't exercise. So it's powerful medicine, isn't it? So think of exercise particularly safeguarding the health hazards of being overweight. So we want to have a healthy weight. Here are some key steps. <clears throat> First of all, you're not going to usually cure all the problem just by exercise. We need both, don't we? We need healthy eating behaviors, and we need to have active exercise, more physical activity. Exercise alone is helpful in uh, maintaining weight loss and uh, helping the person main, uh, result in modest weight loss. But if you put the two together, you'll get a better reduction. Our research does show that levels of physical activity is the most helpful in weight maintenance. And when you find people who've lost a lot of weight and were actually successful in keeping it down, in almost all cases, those are people who do a lot of exercise, somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes a day. These are people who've lost 80 or 90, 100 pounds. The only way they can keep it down is to do lots of exercise. So it's one of the best predictors of who can keep it off. Here's a weight loss program. And they ran some with exercise and some without. And Lynn looked at the weight loss. And uh, this was 184 sedentary overweight uh, women in this case. They followed it, uh, a low-calorie eating plan. And then some of the people didn't do any exercise. That's this group here. And uh, those people who aimed for at least 150 minutes, that's a half an hour a day uh, most days of the week. And then those who even exercise more got at least 200 minutes of exercise per week. How much would that be in hours? That'd be about uh, three hours would be 180. This would be about three and a half hours, wouldn't it? And this would be about two and a half hours. So this is the amount of weight then they lost over their exercise plan. Doesn't say how many months it was, does it, or weeks. Uh, and as they added exercise to their weight loss program, what happened to the amount of weight loss? That's a one-year study. Oh, good. In one year, that's right, right at the top. So in one year, those who, who went on a weight loss program but didn't exercise, they lost 5% of their body weight. This group lost 9%, and those who exercised the most lost 14%. So it's just a good illustration. If you really want to lose weight, you need to eat healthy and lower calories, and you need to add exercise to it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And some people need to do even more than that. That's why I work an hour, at least one of the reasons why I would do at least an hour a day, because I have to struggle to keep my weight down there with my yeah. family background. So greater amounts of exercise and longer duration resulted in greater weight loss. But notice the next part. They found that the vigorous exercise was not any more effective in weight loss than a similar amount of moderate exercise. So going hard, especially if a person is overweight, may not to be too palatable for them, right? <laughs> they say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to exercise. But even if you just get them to do moderate exercise just a little longer, they can get the same benefits. So that's good news, isn't it? 
So just thinking about energy intake goals, calories, if we want to lose a pound of fat per week, we have to eat about 500 calories less per day. Because if you take a pound of fat, there's about 3,500 calories in one pound of fat. If you divide that by seven days in the week, that comes out to be about 500 calories less per day. So that's quite a little bit, isn't it? Uh, so people who go on at 1,200 to 1,500 calories per day, uh, that's for a typical for women, be about 500 less. If the woman needs about 2,000 maybe, or if she's an older lady and sedentary, uh, maybe about 1,700 calories. So cutting back 500 would be about that much. For men, for a little larger, a little larger muscle mass, uh, somewhere around 1,500 to 1,800 calories a day is about what they need to lose one pound per week. You need to add with that some exercise, which we'll look at in a minute too. So here's some ideas. If we need to eat less, for those who are struggling with that, what are some of the things they need to do? Well, one is watch their portion size. If you noticed in the United States in the last 20 years how portion sizes have keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> Did you ever watch that film that's called, uh, uh, what is the fellow that went on the McDonald diet? Uh, Supersize Me. <laughs> I think, isn't that the title? Supersize Me. <laughs> and you go to McDonald's and they have these great big burgers and things and they say, well, do you want to supersize? And he, he made this compact that if they asked him that, he would go ahead and get it. And in one month or however long he was on that, you know, he gained all this weight. And it, just showed. And, and so we have these huge serving sizes now. Or you go to any place at the restaurant, and, and so many of them, you know, great big serving sizes. And so that's getting us in trouble. So we need to watch the serving sizes. And here's some uh, directions on that. Fruits and vegetables, about one cup fresh, half a cup cooked, six ounces of juice would be a serving. Grains, one slice of whole grain breads, a half a cup of pasta. When you go to the spaghetti factory, do they give you half a cup? <laughs> It's a whole plate full, isn't it? Probably two or three cups. Half a cup of rice cooked. And then in the proteins, if you're using uh, fish or lean meats, it's about two ounces or an egg. Half a cup of cottage cheese, half a cup of beans and tofu and so on. And so we need to watch these and uh, keep uh, foods in a little smaller portions. One thing that also helps to do that and research shows that if you don't have a great big giant plate, but you have a little smaller plate, it helps to keep the serving sizes a little smaller. Just don't pile it too high. <laughs> you ever go to those places where you, you pay once and you have all you can eat <laughs> and you watch people's plates coming out of there? <laughs> it's humorous, isn't it? One of these days I, I'm going to get up to nerve and say, just a minute, can I take a picture of that? <laughs> I want to use that in my class. <laughs> so here's some other uh, methods. You know, how much is that when you're out? Well, a cup is about as big a size as your fist, one way to estimate it. And uh, those who use meat or whatever, they've used about the palm of your hand, a, a small piece, in other words. Or uh, one teaspoon, the volume of the tip of a thumb. And one tablespoon, the volume of a thumb. So those are kind of just little things that you can refer to, yeah. When I'm trying to lose weight, I actually measure my food because I find that uh, that if I don't, I say, I'm going to have a half a cup of cereal in the morning. And I pour it in there. It looks like about a half a cup. And then when I measure it, it's about a cup. <laughs> Something about my brain just doesn't work well that way. So I actually measure it. And uh, after a while, it helps you. 
and you just automatically cut back on how much you eat. There's another tip. One was uh, keeping serving sizes smaller. Second tip is uh, don't drink your calories. Think of it in the United States, how many calories people drink. And they get these big gulps, and they go to the restaurant, and they order their hamburger, and what do they get with it? A Coke. And does it come in a nice little eight-ounce glass? <laughs> what does it come in? <laughs> Whoa, these great big giant things. And then they say free refills. And so they drink that, and they go back and get another one. Well, how many calories is there in those great big cups? And what is it? Pure sugar. And that sugar just goes into your bloodstream very quickly, and your blood sugars go up, and that blood sugar has to go somewhere. So where does it go? Well, if we're not exercising, it goes right to our storage, doesn't it? Right around the middle. And so uh, that's a big problem. But even, uh, even if you're drinking healthy things, orange juice is about as healthy as you can get, isn't it? But how many glasses of orange juice should we drink per day? Well, think about it. How many oranges does it take to fill up a glass of orange juice? Have you squeezed them by hand lately? <laughs> Takes a whole bunch of them, doesn't you? Yeah, uh, I've done it a few times. And you wouldn't sit down at breakfast and eat three or four oranges, would you? But it's real easy to have a nice big glass of orange juice and drink it. And how easy does it go down? Whoosh. <laughs> and it goes down so quick that the brain doesn't register that you're getting that many calories. I'll guarantee that if you ate three oranges for breakfast, I had one this morning, that was enough. <laughs> that if you had three and all that chewing and everything and all the bulk that goes with it, your brain would say, whoa, you're just about full already. But you drink the orange juice and you don't notice it. And if it's the soda pop or uh, the coffee with the cream and the sugar in or whatever those drinks are. So if you're, even, even on the orange juice, the recommendations, for all Americans is you ought to limit it, any fruit juice to no more than six ounces a day. You heard that recommendation? And the idea is we need to get back more to whole foods. Now I have a little orange juice once in a while, but primarily I like to eat the whole food, whether it's an orange or an apple or whatever it is. So what's the best thing to drink? Water. Exactly. <clears throat> Another tip that's helpful for most Americans is we need to limit the fast foods and the restaurant foods. Anytime we eat out a lot. Remember I said my brother, oldest brother got up to 300 pounds. He was a truck driver. And uh, where did he get his foods? Restaurants and fast foods, all of it. And that's where he gained those, all that weight up to 300 pounds. They're often high in calories. They're high in saturated fat. We know that's not good for the heart. They're low in dietary fiber. Anytime you have a low fiber diet, that raises the risk for diabetes. My oldest brother has diabetes now as well. They all go together, don't they? So all of these kinds of foods, do we eat many of these foods in America? <laughs> They're we're known for, isn't it? <laughs> and you go over to visit China or India or some of these places now, and you go to an American restaurant, these are the kinds that's over there. <clears throat> so learning to make our own lunch at work or eating at home if we can most of the time, trying to have something healthier. Now you can eat out once in a while and find some healthy things, but it's uh, more difficult. And um, McDonald's just does have salads and things now. <clears throat> and uh, so there can be some good things there. Other good developing, uh, good eating habits that go along with this, eating breakfast daily, we looked at that already, didn't we? Uh, avoid the late eating meals. And that's something that can, it's easy to get it caught in a trap. And we get home late, and we have a great big meal, and we go to bed, and we have our gas tank full. 
and all those calories in there, and where are they going to go? Well, there's only two ways they can go. You either burn it up with exercise, we're not going to get a lot of exercise laid in that bed all night, or they go to stored fat. And so uh, there has been experiments done with rats where they gave them exactly the same number of calories, but one, they gave the calories early on in the day for the rat when he was physically active. The other group of rats gave same number, same food, same number of calories. They gave it to them just before they went to bed, sleep. And after several months, those who got it late in the day, those rats got significantly fatter than the other rats. The other rats didn't gain, get fat at all, but this group did. So while even it's the same calories, we always say a calorie is a calorie, and that's mostly true. <laughs> but it also can have an effect when we eat it. And if we eat the calories earlier in the day when we're physically active, then we can burn them up, especially if we're physically active. If we put them in the gas tank at night, it doesn't make sense, does it? So those people who eat late at night, what do they do for breakfast? Grab a cup of coffee and off to work they go. <laughs> so they're the breakfast skippers too, aren't they? Okay, you can see some others. This is a, uh, a new recommendation. It's come out by the Heart Association. The sugars and the sweets are added calories. We're talking about added sugar to foods. And they're suggesting that no more than six teaspoons of added sugar per day for women. That's about 100 calories. And no more than nine teaspoons of added sugar, about 150 calories for men. They say that's an upper limit. Now, how much sugar is there in a Coke? or some of these other things. Uh, just one of these big gulps or these <laughs> things at the restaurant would put us uh, maybe twice as much as what we're recommended. And it's added to all kinds of things, isn't it? Breakfast cereals. Some breakfast cereals have more sugar than they have grain in them. And uh, all the desserts and the canned fruits. About half the calories in the canned fruit comes from added sugar. So what can we do? We don't have to eat the canned fruit. We can eat the fresh apple, can't we? Or we can eat the banana. We can eat the fresh grapes. And uh, so lots of ways that we can watch for that added sugar. And that, those are just a few little tips, but they make a big difference. One uh, soda pop a day will add about enough calories to equal 15 pounds of excess weight in one year. My niece came to live with us. Uh, she lost her job. And soon after that, she lost her home, <laughs> and she didn't have any place to leave, live, so we took her in for a year. She came to our house, and uh, we always drank water, and we never had any soda pop. That's kind of anathema in our house. <laughs> and she went to the fridge to find something to drink, and there was no soda pop. What am I going to do? She, we said, well, just drink water. She said, I haven't drinking water for years. <laughs> she didn't drink any water. And just to take a glass of water was very difficult for her. Ooh, this is terrible. <laughs> She's used to that sweet stuff, see? And it was real difficult for her. But uh, the year that she lived with us, she lost 15 pounds. And she just cut out all that sweet stuff that she was drinking all the time. So here's some roadblocks. I'm too heavy to exercise. And of course, heavy people need exercise more than anyone, don't they? So with the, with, the, uh, with the people who are overweight, any activity has benefit, but start at them an easy level. Because if they're real heavy, they're going to be more difficult for them. And uh, keep the exercise session short. Sometimes even when you're first starting, I think I told the story, the real heavy lady, 45 minutes, 
at a time, then rest a little bit, and then do another four or five minutes, break it up into shorter periods until they can progress to a little longer time. But if they do, they can make a lot of difference. Water aerobics, walking, biking, those are low-packed aerobics. Uh, those things that you walk on that your feet don't really come off the ground, what they call that, a strider or a elliptical trainers, those are good for people who are overweight, easier on their joints. And then the idea is as they get more fit, is a low-intensity exercise, but exercising longer. And that's what burns up the fat. Okay, then the health challenge. Coming with this is get to seven to eight hours of sleep daily. Have we talked about sleep in this class? Okay. I work on these things all the time, and I keep remembering. It seems like we already talked about this. <laughs> okay, getting sleep is one of the things that uh, is associated, a lack of sleep is associated with being overweight. And so all the studies show when you get adequate sleep, it helps to prevent diabetes. When you're sleeping, it's also when your muscles are growing stronger, aren't they, at night? And so regular exercise, getting plenty of sleep, they go together, don't they? In the daytime, we're in a type of metabolism called catabolism. That's using up the energy stores and reserves. And then at nighttime, as we rest, it goes into another form that's called anabolism. That's when the muscles are built up to be stronger. Your immune system is restored and strengthened. All the things that's been used up during the day are uh, made healthy and restored at night. And so important for energy levels, for immunity, all those kinds of things, healthy muscles, uh, to make sure we get adequate sleep. And uh, the research shows that people who get at least seven to eight hours of sleep daily live longer than people who don't. And that's what this study shows here. Uh, actually, this one's on BMI, isn't it? So as the uh, sleep is uh, low, less than seven hours per night, on an average for a large number of people, they had a BMI of around 30. And what did we say 30 was? It's the beginning of the obese category, isn't it? Those who got seven to eight hours sleep down in here, and 29 and less than that. And notice those who got even nine hours were the leanest. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so at least seven to eight hours of sleep every day helps to keep our weight down. And this is one on sleep and blood pressure. Uh, this has uh, showed that people who got one hour less sleep per day than the average. Here's the average sleep per day, and uh, this is a study on women, five-year study, and increased risk of hypertension or developing high blood pressure. This was their risk, and those who got one hour less per day, a 37% increased. So again, showing that it's not good for us, isn't it? Getting our sleep. Do you like a nap? Are you any nappers here? Uh, a couple of hands. <laughs> this is an interesting study because I like a nap. <laughs> You come to my office uh, around about mid-afternoon, uh, my door will be closed. <laughs> I have an easy chair in there and my feet go up and I lay back and I go sound asleep in about 60 seconds. And uh, 15 minutes later, I'm wide awake and then I'm good till six o'clock. <laughs> my wife has to call me to tell me to come home, otherwise I end up being there till 6.30 or seven. So she calls me right at six every day. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a power nap for me. and. Uh, Along about mid-afternoon, I'm starting to grind down, and I can't think very well, and I'm not very productive. 
And I just say, oh, phooey, I need to rest. And I rest, and then it refreshes me. But it's interesting over there. Now look over there, coronary risk mortality, risk of a heart attack. And they did this study, 23,000 people over a six-year study, and they looked at those who had naps and those who didn't. And those who had never took a nap, this was their risk of a heart attack. Those who occasionally took a nap, it was 12% less. And those who regularly took a nap, it was 37% less. And those who were employed and men and who took a nap every day, a 64% uh, decrease in risk of heart attack. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> well, what's the relationship as far as longevity with those who take siestas, you know, like most of the countries overseas, mm -hmm. have a 10 to 12 to 2 hour siesta time? Mm -hmm. How does that figure into the longevity as opposed to just naps? Well, that's a nap in the midday. It's a break, isn't it? I mean, it's a long sleep after an hour. They sleep even longer? Mm -hmm. I find if I sleep an hour, I wake up and I'm groggy. And over the years, I've just, I don't know whether I've trained myself or it just comes naturally, 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm wide awake and not the least bit sleepy. My productivity is right up there at 100%. So it's a productivity thing for me. But it seems to have some health advantages. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, if you would like to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon, it's okay. You may actually live longer. <laughs> Less risk of a heart attack. <laughs> okay, so we'll stop there. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org <laughs>